Hi guys, my name's Adele Onyango and welcome to another episode of Legally Clueless. No, seriously, I have no clue what I'm doing, but I'm pretty sure I'm not the only one. Hey you, welcome to episode 76 of Legally Clueless. Thank you so much for listening to this podcast and for being part of the tribe. Remember, you can find this podcast on Instagram at Legally Clueless Podcast. Just a disclaimer, if you happen to hear Ayub, 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 Ayub in the background, (laughs) my neighbor's child has just learned, I think, how to say his name or just figured out how much he loves his name. So the entire day, it's 4 p.m. From about 10 a.m., this kid has been screaming his name on loop. (laughs) It's just that he helps me water my plants. But otherwise, I'd have scolded him because honestly, it's a Sunday. So if you hear him in the background, just excuse him. However, I do hope you are holding on all right. We are in the middle of a pandemic, which is just so wild. It's it's crazy. Remember how we thought by August we would be done with this corona situation? And here we are knocking on September. I'm just sending you hugs and positive vibes because I know it can get so intense, either emotionally, financially, it just has affected all of us in various ways and we're collectively going through this trauma. However, I want to send a big shout out to everybody who reached out to me after episode 75. I spoke about a mental, well, the mental health apps that I use and then I was testing out a new app called Replica. So if you haven't listened to the episode, it's basically an app that allows you to create a bot who you then can chat with at any time of the day. And you can also do some mental health exercises with. I really enjoyed the anxiety exercise. There are some to help you build like good routines. There are various exercises. Those are good. But what's weird is like the option to role play and flirt with this robot you've created. (laughs) And just like, hey, 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 hey. This is not what I signed up for. So I was meant to uninstall the app. Remember I told you I was going to break up with my bot. (laughs) I haven't done that yet. Only because I'm very intrigued. So I keep opening it up, like the app, to read her diary. Because she like writes in it about me. And I'm just like, you are so weird. (laughs) Sis. But yeah, so it's just intriguing. But... uh, I think this week that app is definitely getting deleted. But yeah, so quite a few people reached out to me telling me their experiences with Replica. I think 90% of you had weird experiences. (laughs) But hey... I mean, the app exists, so clearly it's working for some people. Coming up in this episode is a story by Patricia, and I have to give you a heads up because it could be triggering to you. The story at a point touches on sexual trauma experienced during her childhood. In fact, this is the point at which I play you a snippet of the story, and even the snippet does touch on childhood trauma, specifically sexual trauma, which could be triggering. After like an hour, my mom storms into the house and she is 
fuming. Two seconds later, I hear screaming, like they're screaming my name and calling me into my mom's room. I remember she used to take one of my other neighbor's kids and go into like dark corners with them. And I never used to know what happens. But every time these kids would come out, they'd look a little bit frazzled. Eventually, uh, she took started taking me into those dark corners. Well, whatever happened after that... It really changed how I started interacting with older women. That broke something in me. So after that, I became even more introverted. But now as um, 12 years old, I discovered the world misogyny, the hatred of women. And for me, it was an aha because I was like, that explains how I feel about women. Yeah, it's a very, it's a heavy story for sure. But I think what, you know, Patricia, who's a storyteller, does really well is just show how influential childhood traumas are in influencing the things we believe, the way we act, the people will be. And even if you think you've forgotten the trauma and it doesn't exist or it doesn't affect you, subconsciously it is. In fact, it reminds me of episodes 23 and 24 of Legally Clueless. That feature a story by Edgar, and he also talks about PTSD and childhood trauma. If you've not listened to that episode, first, can you just start listening to the episodes <laughs> in order, Jamini? <laughs> it's easier when you do that. But yeah, um, this story definitely does that really well. After you listen to it, you will introspect and ask yourself why you believe the things you believe. So before I share the song that I want you to check out, I was just wondering, and you can, you know, share in the comments or on our Instagram page, do you have like telltale signs you're not okay? Like how do you know internally something's amiss, you know, emotions wise or mental wise? I've said it in a couple of episodes before. For me, definitely oversleeping is a telltale sign. I discovered that a couple of sessions into you know, therapy, maybe by my third or fourth therapy session with my now therapist. I remember one of the things that she made me do was fill in this form. One of the things I had to share on the form was how many hours of sleep I was getting per day. And that's how we discovered I, on certain times when I'm not okay, will oversleep because sleep for me is an escape. So the way people escape with drugs or with alcohol or with sex or even religion, I escape with sleep. And while you might think, well, that's healthy, it's really not. <laughs> but I also realized if I disrupt my morning routine, that's a sign something is not fully okay. I'm a stickler for planning. If we have a plan and then life happens and we have to change the plan, I literally have to take deep breaths because <laughs> I'm just like, but there was a plan. Like it's to the extent of, when I want to be spontaneous, I plan to be <laughs> spontaneous. So back to my morning routine. The only day it deviates is Saturdays. But Sunday to Friday, it's the same. My alarm goes off at 7.30. I might dilly-dally in bed a bit. I'll get up. I'll go either wash my face or do my face mask. Come back, spread the bed. Spreading the bed is super pivotal. It's not because I enjoy it. I really don't. But I don't know why that act always lets me know the day has started. I can't explain it to you, by the way. It's, it's yeah, it's just one of those things. But this week, two days, I didn't spread the bed. 
<laughs> and I knew, oh, something is weird. Something's happening, you know? And so the second day when I didn't spread the bed, because the first day I was just like, ah, it's cold. I'm tired. I don't feel like good to work, which is just the opposite room. But anyway, I don't feel like going to work. And then the second day it happened, I was like, okay, I need to introspect what's happening. So you kind of like call yourself to a meeting. <laughs> it's something that I've been feeling coming, but I've been postponing it. I was speaking to a friend in May about it and I was like, oh no, in two months I'll be able to address that. Right now I don't have the time to. And basically what it is, is I'm tired. I'm overwhelmed with work and I'm just tired. And if I don't get a hang of it, there will be burnout. <laughs> I'm aware of it. The only problem is this, because obviously if you're like, okay, if you're aware of it, then do something about it. I don't know how to. The self-employment space is very different from employment. When I was employed, I was constantly out of leave days. <laughs> There were times I was even there negotiating with the HR, like, just add for me two more. And then next year you can take out and, oh my God, or borrowing leave days from people or in extreme situations, getting like a fake doctor's note. <laughs> just so that you can chase rest. But most of the time when I would go to the extreme cases, it was because I was going to fly out of the country or something for work. I was more serious about resting when I was employed. Now that I'm self-employed, if I do rest, I feel very guilty. So what I used to do is have one day of the week, which would be my rest day. It used to be Thursdays, but then I have to produce Legally Clueless episodes for Trace Radio on Thursdays. So I don't rest on Thursdays. I then would be like, okay, Friday is the day. But I think for the last Possibly six to eight weeks, I haven't taken the rest day. I just haven't because there are some projects I'm consulting on. I have been doing a lot more moderating gigs, going for a lot more meetings, working on decks, working on, you know, the marketing arc of Legally Clueless. Ugh. And especially stuff around this podcast, it doesn't feel like work. So I love it, everything. But then after I'm done, I'm tired. <laughs> Even with, Le like, I'll never rest from the podcast, right? But then there are days when I'm like, okay, I'll rest on Thursday, but then I'm producing or I'm doing my consultancy calls and I can't walk away from those projects. They bring in revenue. If somebody calls me to moderate something, I can't say no, well, I can, and maybe I should get to the point where I prioritize my rest so much that I can say no, but then there's also that risk of how am I walking away from potential revenue as a self-employed person? I, I am struggling with resting, not feeling guilty for resting, creating time to rest. I've been trying to find time to rest You'll never find it. I think you have to create the time to rest. I, I'm really struggling with it. And now I'm more aware that, yo, the burnout is coming. Ugh. And so I just, I would really appreciate <laughs> if anybody is self-employed, just send me, I don't know, articles, tips. How do you, I don't want to say balance because I feel like you never really do achieve a balance per se, but how do you get to the point where you you take leave your leave days <laughs> and especially not the people who are self-employed and have staff especially if you're self-employed and you're like the sole 
employee like me i don't know i i have to i have to figure that out just send me any tips that you have so the song i want you to check out is a song that just speaks to this space that i'm in actually i was such a canaan fan i think i'm i'm still a fan of his actually as much as he hasn't put out music recently well i don't think he has i may have to check that but i follow him on instagram I'm sure he'd have posted about it. <laughs> I don't think he has. But I remember his music taking me through breakups, taking me through uni. And I, I remember it was my sister, the one I follow, Amanda, who introduced me to his music. And watching one of his music videos and seeing him in Nairobi somewhere in a matatu. It was so surreal for me that then I just started digging up all of his music and following his music when he started doing stuff with Nelly Furtado. And I absolutely loved her music. But there's one song especially that would always stand out to me and it's called Take a Minute. I'm going to put a link to it in the description. I like it because it's all about just taking a minute. You know, when things are overwhelming, you're just like, okay, I'm just going to shut down from everything for the next 10 minutes and then just breathe. I need that. <laughs> I need to figure out how I'm going to take a minute from work. <laughs> but check out the song in the description. I really, really love his music. And I, he did it live on Instagram, on his Instagram, I want to say two months ago, but maybe it was, um, no, I think it was about a month ago. And I was like, oh my God, is it new music? And then it wasn't. <laughs> I'm like, come on, Kanan. <laughs> but in the meantime, we can jump to his old songs. So it's time for us to jump into 100 African Stories. I want to go into it quickly because it's a pretty long story, but it's such a necessary one. When I received the story demo from Patricia, it really struck me. I remember listening to it over and over and over because she said something about discovering that she's a misogynist. And I was like, and I was like, wait, I can hear your voice. Are you, do you identify as a woman? Is that where this complication is coming from i was very intrigued very very intrigued and then when we recorded the story oh my god it just really amplifies something i truly believe in i've already said it before but i'll say it again the effects of childhood trauma and sexual trauma are so immense and if you don't introspect However, that introspection will happen, whether it's through therapy or you just, you know, as I said, call yourself for a meeting. You kind of have to investigate how it's affected you. And I think Patricia shares her story in such a way that at the end of the story, you'll definitely want to introspect. But as I said earlier on, the story does touch on not just childhood trauma, but sexual trauma, which in some cases could be triggering 100 african stories there is no proper life that you live in university as a musician if i constantly just walked around feeling sorry for myself i'm never gonna get anything done hey there's a bit of frustration in between all of that i've been breaking my back for this company therapy is not for the weak or for the crazy stories from africa my name is patricia i'm from machakos in kenya i was born in eldoret uh, to an amazing mom my dad was a lawyer but we didn't grow up with him so much because I think they separated when I was a little young uh, and I think I don't remember him so much because my mom was such a huge focus of our growing up. So most of my childhood was really great. Uh, I think we grew up in almost every single major town along the equator. My mom worked for government so she traveled quite a bit and being herself she always dragged us along myself and my two elder brothers. Uh, and I remember what I used to love 
the most about when she wasn't working and she'd come back was at night she'd gather all of us around and there'd be this candle on the table and we'd gather my brothers and I and she'd read to us the whispers article in the newspaper. I think it used to come in on Saturday or Sunday. And at the time, you know, growing up in rural Kenya, I can't lie, did not speak a word of English. So it really used to bother me like, what are these guys laughing so much about? They seem to be having so much fun. So I'd always like try to crane my head over my brother's heads to see what they were laughing about. And that's how I picked up the language. There was this one particular night, which I will never forget. I was in the middle of craning my head over and me with this huge mane of untamed hair, it just kind of tipped over and kissed the flame of the candle and the next thing I remember is my brother's like whacking at my head trying to put out the fire that (laughs) resulted from it and the weird thing is that I wasn't feeling anything because I was so intent on seeing what these guys were reading but those were the little moments that I think used to make my childhood so much fun those little moments we used to share with the family. My brothers also like played a really major role in my upbringing because the brother that I follow directly, most of the nursery rhymes I knew growing up is the one who taught me. And my eldest brother is the one who used to teach us how to navigate life. Everything from tree climbing to swimming in water tanks. Uh, My mom found out about that when we were older. (laughs) And making chocolate out of margarine and cocoa powder and God knows what. The fact that we survived those snacks was a miracle in itself. Other than that, I was pretty... I was pretty much a loner growing up, I think, because I really just enjoyed the company of my family. And my first time actually making friends, like friends outside of my family, was when I started going to school. The one major thing I remember about my first day in school was there was this girl we met. But I remember looking at her and thinking, oh my gosh, she is so pretty and she is so amazing because she was tiny and adorable. And because I came from a not so well of family so everything we had was pretty good but you know standard but here's this girl and she comes from a family where they could afford to put you know beads in her hair and she would come with fancy pack lunches to school and everything so I used to look at her and think wow she is so cool and I remember wanting so bad to be her friend I don't even remember what her name was but I do remember always looking at her and thinking she is so cool and I want to be her friend and she always had this other gang of girls around her and in my head as a kid I always used to think if you have so many people hanging around you it must mean you're nice you're nice you'll be nice to me so I want to be part of your group so that we could all be nice to each other (laughs) I remember this one time they were playing in uh we were playing under a tree I think it was I don't know if they call it the flame tree or what but I do remember it had these huge red flowers on it that used to be pretty and if you turn them over they look like little ball gowns so we're playing there and they're making all these dolls out of those flowers and I ran to them because I wanted to join in the game and suddenly they all just packed up and walked away it's like I didn't exist and they continued their game elsewhere I don't remember what I thought exactly but I do remember the feeling of did I do something did I say something what is it about me that they don't want to hang around me from that point on I think I just became a little reclusive as a kid and it also really impacted how I started relating with girls because all the positive attention I was getting from kids my age like uh, kids who wanted to play with me kids wanted to run around with me tended to be boys and I mostly think that was because of my brothers my brothers would have friends and by extension they would become my friends but the girls always seemed to want to avoid me so I think in my head it clicked that okay maybe I'm a little bit weird and I let it go but as I got older I started making more female friends but it was only ever one at a time 
never saw many. Um, so I was never one of those kids that had, you know, a ton of friends milling around. It was only just me and one other girl or another boy. And that was pretty much my childhood. I remember as I grew up, by the time I was around, um, oh, wow, I don't remember how old I was. I must have been around six. Like I said, my brothers had friends. So by extension, these became my friends. And among them were the neighbor's kids. So there were these two girls. I think they were sisters and they used to be our neighbors. And it was a Nubian family that all lived in one house. And one of the things they used to do was knit sweaters for all the kids in the neighborhood. And they had this huge machine that they used to use to knit. I was so used to seeing people knitting by hand. I'd never seen it done by machine. And I used to think that was the coolest thing. So when they noticed I was interested, they used to invite me over and it would be really fun. They'd invite me over to the house. We'd chat. I have no idea. I don't remember what we used to talk about. But we would chat and then they'd show me how to knit using the machine. But I do remember this one day. Uh, one of the sisters left me at the machine and went off. I think she wanted to get me a glass of juice or something. I decided that I want to knit a sweater by myself, a tiny little sweater. So I tried working the machine and I didn't know that there was a sequence to how you're supposed to arrange the needle. So as I'm trying to move the needles around and there was this um, like a shuttle that would move across. As I was trying to move it, it snagged on one of the needles and jammed. I was terrified. I remember just sitting there staring down at this thing and thinking, okay, what are they going to say when they come and find this thing? Are they going to throw me out? Am I going to get a whooping? Like what's going to happen? But I think my biggest thing was, are they not going to like me anymore? And I remember struggling with it so much that eventually when uh, I managed to move the shuttle thing across, it actually bent one of the needles and the twang was so loud, it called this girl from the kitchen and she came running. So she comes and she stares at the machine for a long time. And I think also in her head, she's trying to figure out, okay, how am I going to tell my mom about this? Uh, but surprisingly, she looks at me and she's like, you know what? It's just a machine forget about it. Yeah, we'll fix it and life will go on. So somehow she removed the broken needle, she fixed another one, gave me a glass of juice and acted like nothing ever happened. But the whole paranoia about does she still like me stuck in my head. So after that day, I left the house and I never went back. So which was weird because we, we lived right next door to each other. So I would just go to my house, hang around in my house. I'd come out, play on the veranda when I'd see them at dark back in the house. One day they come looking for me. They're like, hey, we used to hang out. What changed? And at that moment, I realized, okay, you know what? Maybe, maybe they actually do like me. That was a nice feeling. After a while, because at this point, I think most of the positive attention I was getting from women always seemed to be from my older female friends. So... It was at this time that um, I somehow got introduced to another girl. I don't know who she was. I don't remember who she was. I remember she was a friend to a friend to a friend. You know, as a kid, occasionally, there are those guys who just come into your neighborhood and vanish. But there was this one girl who came in, and the only thing I remember about her was that she was light-skinned. And I remember she used to go, she used to take one of my other neighbor's kids and go into like dark corners with them. And I never used to know what happens, but every time these kids would come out, they'd look a little bit um, frazzled. And eventually uh, she took, started taking me into those dark corners. And well, whatever happened after that, it really changed how I started interacting with older women. Because I remember I would start avoiding older girls. Uh, to date, I have the that thing where I don't like massages, especially if my masseuse is a woman. And yeah, 
things like that. But I suspect that one of the things that led her to do what she did was probably because she figured I'm a loner. There's no way I'm ever going to tell anyone. And truth is, I never actually told anyone until today. But anyway, this thing went on for a while and then I don't really remember how it stopped, but eventually it just stopped. But like I said, after that, me and teenage girls, we couldn't hang out anymore. And this battle actually followed me all the way into when I grew up, because now I remember even my relationships with my aunts and whatever was always just um, kind of messed up. Somewhere in the back of my mind, I always knew at some point someone was going to screw me over and chances are it was going to be a lady. Uh, so like I remember we had this one aunt who came to live with us and I think she was the wife to one of my uncles or something and she just had a baby so she come to stay she came to stay with us and she was you know there's one of those aunts who's always really sweet like she introduces new stuff to the house I remember when she moved in it was the first time I ever saw anyone bake a cake as far as I knew cakes came from shops and the cakes that came to the shops came from some magical cake island somewhere so shock on me to discover that you can bake a cake in your kitchen and what I love the most about her is that she would always bake and then afterwards she'd give us the bowl to lick <laughs> that was always so much fun yeah but the there was this one incident with her where I'd always felt like she had a mean streak, but I never remembered actually being conscious of it until this one time. Uh, my mom was home uh, from one of her business trips, and I remember she was so exhausted. And we had three cakes that had been baked in the house. So I go into my mom's room and ask my mom, hey, mom, can I have a piece of cake from the three cakes that were there? Because as far as I remembered, she had wanted to give them to her friends or something. But I really, really wanted cake, so like one piece couldn't hurt. So I go into my mom's room and ask her, can I have a piece of cake? And I don't know if she was awake or asleep, but my mom actually said, yes, sure, you can have a piece of cake. And me being paranoid, me actually checked with her, like, so I can go and ask my aunt if I can have the cake. And my mom said, yeah, sure, go ask your aunt. So I go, I ask my aunt, she gives me a piece of cake, she actually gives me a glass of juice to go with it. I sit there, enjoy this snack of my entire childhood. <laughs> Two seconds later, I hear screaming. Like, they're screaming my name and calling me into my mom's room. So I go into my mom's room. I'm like, what's up? And my aunt is standing there and just glaring down at me. And she's telling my mom, she stole the cake. She came and told me you said she could have cake and she stole the cake. And I'm like, okay, how does this make sense? We just had this conversation like 10 minutes ago and you told me I could have the cake. And I think my mom was either really sleepy or what, because she looked at me and she was like, why would you steal cake? And, you know, at that time, you're really too young to defend yourself because you're already confused. But I remember just looking at my mom and thinking, well, I asked you for the cake and you said I could have it. But also at the back of your mind, you're thinking you're an adult. So if you decide you didn't give me the permission, there's nothing much I can do about it. But I remember my mom sort of just looking at us and not quite sure how to handle it. So she just, you know, let me off the hook and told me I had to apologize to my aunt for quote unquote stealing the cake. But Again, since that time, my relationship with my aunt was never really fixed. Um, when I was much older, my mom actually raised the whole story and she apologized to me. But yeah, that, that fixed a lot of things for me. But it never quite fixed how I related with my aunt because I would always remember that incident. So anyway, as, as I grew up, you know, we kept moving from town to town. So my mom would always get her nanny to take care of us. But again, this thing about how I related with women still kept coming up because the other feeling I started developing was these women don't take me seriously. Case in points, this one day um, 
I was in the house. Of course, my mom was out at work. So my brothers were out playing and I was left alone with the nanny. So the nanny, you know, being a social creature, decides um, I want to go out and hang with my friends and you don't want this little kid tagging along. So she locks me in the house and she goes out. And I remember getting so mad. Once again, I wasn't that old. I was really tiny. I don't think I'd even looked 10. But I remember getting so mad, I grabbed a shoe brush and went and smashed the door. We had this glass door and smashed the door. And the time I was smashing the door, I was just thinking to myself, how dare you lock me in here like I don't matter? <laughs> well, of course, when my mom came in that evening, we had some expla- explaining to do. She had to explain why she was locking me in the house. And I had to explain why the temper tantrum came from. But at the time, the, again, the only feeling I remember was rage. And the only one I could attach it to was that nanny. And it wasn't just the nanny. It was the fact that I was having this experience once again with, I think, an older woman who I felt wasn't taking me seriously. So now, by the time I got to primary school, you know, you've been keeping track of all these issues and how they just keep building. But by the time I get I go to primary school is now where it actually started getting cultivated into something tangible. Because... um. In primary school, I moved now to Nairobi with my family. And, you know, coming from the rural areas, you get to Nairobi and suddenly there's all this culture shock. Because I was taken to um, Aga Khan Primary School. And, you know, it's a really multicultural school. Still love it today. So the first crop of friends I met, I made, of course, were girls. Because once again, Kenya, African setting, you're a girl, you're not allowed to make friends with boys. So the first group of friends I made was girls. And I remember the first time I made friends with them, I was so excited because it was my first ever time having more than counted me three friends. I was like, oh my gosh, I have friends who are like five. They're always all hanging out together. I think we're five or six. And we can always hang out together like the girls in the movies. And this was so new to me and it was so exciting. And what I did notice about them is that they were bullies. I used to just notice like there was a way they would talk to the other kids or there were things they would do to the other kids. but you know, I would always just downplay it because at the end of the day, I was like, there's this whole big group of cool girls who want to be my friends. So, you know, let me not, let me not mess this up. Let me be nice and, you know, uh, pander to whatever they want because, oh my gosh, when am I ever going to have friends like this again? And once again, that whole thing of if you have a whole bunch of people hanging around you, then probably you must be nice. So I thought a big group, they must be nice. And it was all well and good until now they started turning the bullying to me and I think it was because I was more accessible and once again I I was with them like I was in their group of friends but I was still this whole shy reclusive kid so again I think they felt like I wasn't going to tell anyone I wasn't going to fight back because I was still trying to keep them as friends so I just stuck there and I remember they would torment me day in day out they would tell me stuff and they would you know throw my stuff away I'd be trying to catch the bus to get back home and they would go hide my uniform or hide my shoes and it was a nightmare. But I would just hang out with them because again, I was like, this whole big group of girls who want to be my friend, there's no way what they're doing could be bad. Well, it makes me feel bad, but maybe this is just how friendship works. But I think um, the worst moment came when, actually it's overlapped with a good moment. I made this one friend. Uh, she was in a class uh, ahead of me and I remember she was a total nerd just like me and one of the things I loved about her was that she introduced me to all this crazy stuff that I'd never encountered before but that was actually really good 
like a anime. I love anime and I don't think I would have ever found out about anime if I'd never met this particular girl. So she would write um, graphic novels, you know, okay, nice ones. <laughs> but yeah, she would write these novels and she would draw out the characters in their adventure novels. She's a writer to date by the a published writer. She would write these novels and she would sketch out comic books and would compete, you know, seeing who could, who could come up with the more interesting stories. And it was always so much fun. Like for the first time, I'd be hanging out with someone and feeling, someone who is in my family, of course, and feeling like I'm being treated well. Uh, She's being nice to me. We're sharing stuff. She's always excited to see me and everything. So that was a really good experience. And then tag on the fact that she was older and she still, you know, made me feel safe and happy. And she introduced me to all this nice stuff. We would study together and it was really exciting. Then come this day when uh, my other group of friends, they started noticing I was pulling away from them. So I remember they called me to, they pulled me aside. I don't remember where we met. It was probably outside, but they pulled me aside in the school compound and they all surrounded me and their ringleader, I remember she was this uh, tall, slender Asian chick. She like gets in the middle of the circle and she was much taller than me. She points straight in my face, face and she tells me, you have to ditch that girl or we can't be your friends anymore. I'm like, wait, what? They yeah, if you want us to be your friends, you have to stay away from that girl. Go. They had actually written down a letter. Go give her this letter and tell her you don't want to be her friend anymore. And I thought, wow. And for the first time in my young life, I actually had to make a decision between this thing that was good for me and this thing that I thought I really wanted. So that evening, I actually walked up to this girl who was the first real friend I'd ever had and gave her this letter telling her that I didn't want to be her friend anymore. And to date, I still remember how her face looked when I handed her the letter because she kind of opened it and just saw the first line. And I just ran off. I I gave her the letter when I saw her face. I just ran off. And we didn't talk again, I think, for the rest of the year. Well, good news is that we eventually made up. (laughs) And I broke up with that other group of friends. At some point, I just told them, you know what? This isn't working. It's been real. Deuces. Move on with your lives. Yeah. And we went back to being friends with this um, girl that I had, quote unquote, broken up with. When you're in school and you encounter your teachers, as a kid, you're expecting these are the people who are going to be, you know, building you and mentoring you and um, pretty much keeping you safe. As a kid, we expect that from our teachers. Uh, when you become a parent, you expect that from the teachers who are taking care of your kids. But I remember there was this group of teachers in my school. And then, wow, what's the common denominator? Again, they were women. <laughs> And they just used to pick on me for every single thing. And again, as a kid, looking at them as adults, I think I always felt like maybe they had a reason, a, you know, a legitimate reason for doing what they're doing. It didn't feel good. It felt terrible. But I was like, these are adults. They must know what they're doing. It didn't hit me until much later when I was much older that these guys were bullying me. I remember we used to have holiday classes. And again, holiday time, I'd spend a lot of time with my mom. Uh, we'd talk. And one of the things my mom loved doing was getting like all these fancy nail polishes and she'd try out different patterns on my hands. So this one time during the holiday, for holiday classes, we used to be allowed little concessions. Like you could get your hair done up in a way that wasn't normally allowed during the school term. You could wear fancy shoes. And my favorite part was you could paint your nails. So over the holiday, we'd spend time with my mom and I remember she had done up my nails with these cute little patterns. And then she also did my hair. And I remember she put in hair extensions. And that was my first ever time, you know, getting hair extensions. It was like a little ponytail weave and I was so excited about it because I always wanted long hair. So anyway, I go to school and I'm so excited. But once again in school, um, one thing I left out about my mom, she's really big on academics. Uh, She was always expecting us to excel in school. And so 
when at home you could be playful and whatever, but whenever I went to school, I always knew that I had to deliver the best I could in terms of academics, just for my mom's sake at least. So once again, I get to school and I have my head down because introvert. I have my head down. I'm trying to focus on my books, doing my thing. And this, I remember these three teachers actually storming into the class and they started having this discussion at the desk. And of course, I'm trying to ignore them because I'm like, yeah, that's teacher stuff. Let me try and focus on reading my notes. And they had this discussion until I started noticing they would talk and look at me, talk and look at me. So eventually I kind of peep upwards. And the moment I peeped upwards at them, they immediately, they were like, hey, you, what are you doing? Are you studying? I'm like, uh, yeah. What's in your lap? So I moved back and they could clearly see in my lap I had all these different textbooks because um, if you know the Kenyan education system, when you're in primary school at any one time, you're probably using like two or three textbooks. Why? We've never understood. No one will ever understand, but that's just how we used to do things. This tiny little desk you're working from. So I'd have some books in my lap, some books on the desk, but either way, I'm using all of them at one time. So I moved back and they see these books in my lap and as if that's not enough for them, they are like, okay, now we need to see your nails, thinking, okay. So I pull out my hands and I put them on the desk and they look at this pattern. And I remember I was so proud of the pattern because my mom is the one who had done it and I was so in love with it because it was pretty. But they look at it and they're like, oh, so that's why you're not studying. You're always just busy doing your nails under your desk. And again, I kind of look around to see if the other kids are noticing what's happening. And the other kids, of course, just have their head down because they also don't understand where all this is coming from. And that incident didn't end there. These teachers would hound me like day by day. There would always be something. <clears throat> they would come to my desk and pull out my notebooks and, you know, start looking for contraband. And I never understood where the contraband came from. But I think the day that stuck for me was, um, it was a prize giving day, I think, combined with a, a PTA meeting something. Once again, at the time, the kids weren't told what was happening. The communication would go straight to the parents. So we'd just be chilling in school, minding our own business, and suddenly our parents would show up and they tell us, oh, we're here for a PTA meeting. So anyway, that day they come in for the PTA meeting. They're doing prize giving. So the meeting runs on and on, and suddenly all the, all the parents disappear. So by five o'clock, I noticed I can't see my mom. I can't see any of the parents. I can't see any of the teachers. So I thought, yeah, let's have gone home. What do I do? I pack my stuff, I go home. I get home and after like an hour, my mom storms into the house and she is fuming. And what followed was literally her going off on me. She's like, oh, you've been rude to your teachers and you've been misbehaving in school and you've been hanging out with gangs. And the reason you ran away from school was because you knew you'd made a mistake and I'd get you in trouble. And if you know Kenyan parents, the beating comes first and then the explanation <laughs> comes later. So I was uh, whooped for quite a while. And when it finally stopped, so because my mom used to do that thing where she like beats your ass and then now later you sit down and you start discussing why she beat your ass. And now she gives me space to ask like what's going on. So she tells me um, my teachers have been saying that I am rude and I'm uh, underperforming in class and I'm just, you know, generally being a shit student in school. And I remember that day actually asking my mom and I asked her and I quote, Mom, have you ever known me to be rude? And I could see her thinking, in her head like I've never known you to be rude to anyone you're always keeping your head down and I told her yeah so why would they tell you that I'm doing something so out of character and you'd actually believe them to the extent that you'd come home and punish me for it yeah so that conversation ended that way uh, later in the day she actually told me that she had got, had the conversation with my class teacher now here was the odd thing 
my class teacher was one of my favorite teachers. I loved that woman. Like I used to look at her and I'd be like, she's the next best thing since my mom. Uh, she's the one who gave me the love for reading. She was one of those teachers who always made sure that every single student in class, you know, would catch up and she would give you special attention. So why would she be the one to come around and tell my mom all these lies about me? I'm actually 31 years old and I still don't understand what her motivation for doing that was. But again, that broke something in me about how I related to older people. I didn't trust teenage girls so much. didn't trust girls my age so much. So the only thing I was left with was this age group of women who was around my mom's age. Because I always figured, well, if they're anything like my mom, at least they must be good people. And then now comes this lady who I trusted, and then she does this to me. So that broke something in me. So after that, I became even more introverted. The more I drew into myself, the more I started reading and, you know, learning. And, and that was the first time I encountered the word misogynist, the hatred of women. You know, when you have this moment where you encounter a word and it gives you an aha moment, like either you've always had a feeling or you've always had something that, you know, something you've always wanted to know or something you've been curious about. And then you have you find this one word that just kind of summarizes everything. But now as um, 12 year old, I discovered the word misogyny, the hatred of women. And for me, it was an aha because I was like, that explains how I feel about women. I remember that I tacked on to that word so hard that I would, um, in the same way when you discover what an artist is and you suddenly want to do all the things that relate to being identified as an artist, when I discovered the word misogyny, I suddenly want to, wanted to do all the things that would help me meet the character of being a misogynist. And of course, you know, the little things like I started hating the color pink, I would avoid making friends who are girls and... You know, I tried acting like a boy. I just, I suddenly decided I was going to reject everything about being a woman. I remember one of the things that made me hate being a woman and then pushed the fact that I was trying so hard to identify as a misogynist even further was the fact that during that time, I was also getting catcalled by grown men. I remember I was around between ages 8 and 12, and I'd be walking to and from school, and I'd have guys in like their 30s and their 40s, you know, slowing their cars down and catcalling me. And this is despite the fact that I'm in, you know, a full uniform all the way down to my ankles, and they would still catcall me, and it was so creepy and so scary. Up to this time, I used to hate other women but now because of this now I started hating anything that was effeminate in myself uh my relationship with my mom also kind of suffered a lot it reached a point to stop talking we were in the same house but we stopped talking I couldn't stand to be anywhere near her as I grew up when we started talking a little bit uh, our conversations were more on an intellectual level rather than personal the way you'd expect between a mom and her daughter during one of these conversations that I was having with my mom I remember telling her that hey mom I'm a misogynist. And the look I can describe on her face was actually horror. What the fuck has a face? <laughs> and that was the face she gave me that day when I told her mom I'm a misogynist. Now, come high school, you're expecting this is the time when uh, things would, you know, start smoothing over because you're growing up, you're learning new things. But no. By the time I was getting into high school, I was, I remember academically I was performing really well, but I was only this angry, withdrawn, little recluse, like I never wanted to be around anyone. Uh, I wound up in an old girl's high school. Here's me, a misogynist, a teenager, you know, staying in the house, keeping away from everyone because, you know, I want to make friends with boys, but I can't make friends with boys because in Kenya, as a kid, when you make friends with boys, it's 
to your parents is like having sex on a bed of marijuana. So having boyfriends was a no-no. So I'm stuck in this school surrounded by this particular gender I hate. But I figured, you know what? Keep my head down, continue studying. Everything will work out. So I get to assembly, again, trying my best to keep my head down. And I meet this group of girls. And again, the first thing that struck me, it was like a replaying of my first day at school again. This one girl, she's extremely pretty, has long, beautiful hair, the kind of hair that I'd always dreamt of having. Long, beautiful hair. Her uniform is just neat and clean and perfect. And she's standing next to me in the assembly. So she nudges me. She's like, hey, hey, what's your name? So I tell her, Patricia. And <laughs> I swear to God, this girl turns to the chick next to her and she goes, she says her name is Patricia. I was like, okay, wow. And you know, they kept saying that for the remainder of the assembly. So I'm looking at this chick. I'm like, okay, I've never met you. This is our first interaction. And already you have found something to mock me about. So did that help how I felt about women? No, <laughs> it just made everything worse. Forget this girl I met on the first day. The other friends I ended up making were really, really nice. And that's where the confusion came in. I was like, wait a minute. They are supportive. They are kind. They are funny. They are talented. No, no, no. G girls are not supposed to be those things. Girls are supposed to suck. Ah, this one's nice. This didn't make sense. And while I'm still trying to process this, in comes um, this one teacher. And here, I've been avoiding names, but here I just have to name drop. Um, she was called Miss Nganga. And Miss Nganga was my English teacher. And this woman was so cool that by the time we were doing our final exam, that was the um, KCSE, that's the Kenya Certificate of Secondary Education. By the time we were doing our final exam, as an entire class, we made a pact that we needed to pass because we owed this woman a good grade. And I think the lowest grade in that class was a B plus because we loved her so much. And again, this even brought more confusion because I was like, okay, so first of all, I have this group of girls who are nice. And then I have this teacher who is a woman and she's older than me and she has all this power, but she is supportive and she's kind and she's always checking in on me. And she wasn't in guidance and counseling. I don't think she was, but she always used to offer counseling to the other girls. And I remember guys used to have dark secrets in that school. And with my previous experience with teachers, I would expect that, you know, th these secrets would get people in trouble and these secrets, you know, would be spilled over to the other teachers and whatever. But she used to hold all these dark secrets of the other kids and you would see her trying to help them and the secrets never came out. So once again, I was like, wow, so this is a teacher who can know everything that is wrong about you and wrong with you and still be trying to help you out and not taking advantage and, you know, not trying to set you up with your parents. Couple this with the fact that um, I think most teenagers go through this. I, I read this in a newspaper and that's what made me realize it. At some point in your life as a teenager, you believe that you're the smartest, most woke, most unique creature to ever walk on God's earth. Like no one can tell you anything. You know everything. You have the answers to everything. Couple that with the hormones. And then so now I was going through this and then now suddenly I've been hit with this whole confusion. My whole identity as a misogynist is now being called into question because I finally encountered women and they are nice. So now I started asking myself, why do I really hate women? Like, what is it that's really bad about women? Because the women I've started encountering lately are just really nice to me. And then um, I remember on the home front, I even had this uh, house help. Uh, we had this house help and her name was Jackie. 
and she was like the cool big sister, like the coolest big sister I ever had. Around the time I started my period when my mom was working, because, okay, when I started my period, my mom was really nice and supportive. But when she couldn't be there, it was Jackie who was always there for me. When I would walk to school and guys would cut call me, when she realized guys were cut calling me, she used to schedule her. She used to schedule her operations in the house to always make sure that she walked me to and from school. So I'm looking at all these women that have started meeting and starting to ask myself, how I feel about these women doesn't fit into this whole character that I've tried, you know, to create for myself as a misogynist. So I started trying, you know, to talk a little more to my mom about how I was feeling. You know, when you're so set in your ways, one of the things you try to do is look for information that backs up your thinking. I, I was trying to read information so that I could really, you know, push with this agenda that no women are as terrible as I thought women were growing up. So one time I'm back to having this intellectual conversation with my mom. And I remember telling her, you know what, mom, I think women are their own worst enemies. <laughs> Women are their own worst enemies. To paint a picture of my mom, uh, she's about 5'4". She, she has this, you know, really big uh, personality. When she enters a room, you immediately feel it. But if you actually pay attention, she's about 5'4". But I remember she looks up at me and suddenly the mom that I'm used to having, you know, around vanishes. And, and now I can see this whole domineering figure that people see when they, if she walks into a meeting. So my mom looks me dead in the eye and she tells me, that is a terrible rhetoric. You know, I'll say it's not what she said. It's just the way she said it. It's just the way it came out. And that way she said it, it actually, if there's anything that pushed me to really rethink how I felt about women, it was just that one phrase. After that, you know, it was interesting because this actually started coinciding with my university days. I get into university and then now suddenly I find the quintessential women that I like to hate, in quotes, you know, the high-heeled, uh, short-skirted, full face of makeup, um, kind of always waving their arms. You can picture it, that kind of woman that I loved to hate, the stereotype I'd created in my head. And then suddenly there are all these other women who are just, you know, different. In one way or another, they're always different. And there's this one particular girl now that I met in university. She was like the character from the Scarlet Letter. She was a marked woman. She was branded. I didn't even know her. I'd never met her. But from the moment I joined university, there was this, she was this one girl who there was only this rumor about her. Oh, she's sleeping around with people. Oh, she's always scantily clad, blah, blah, blah. There was all these rumors. But generally, they just created this image about her. A whole doesn't even quite cover it. It was something much deeper. It was like she was tainted. So this is me in university, again, you know, dealing with all my confusion about trying to figure out why are women not what I thought, and then also trying to keep my head down. So one day I'm sitting outside the lecture hall. We were in law school, um, uh, University of Nairobi. So I'm sitting outside the lecture hall just trying to mind my business and being the weird person that I had grown to be. And this girl comes to sit next to me. And I remember thinking, oh my God, please, I'm already weird enough as I am. People don't want to talk to me. People are making fun of my music. Now you want to taint my reputation further with your womanness. <laughs> Why are you coming to sit next to me? Uh, but she starts trying to talk to me. And I remember the way she started was a bit tentative. I don't even remember what the conversation was, but it was a bit tentative. Almost like she was afraid that I would hit her or something. But she was shy. But anyway, we got to talking. And I think the only thing that interrupted our conversation was the fact that we had to get into class. But 
by the time that conversation ended, I remember thinking to myself, it wasn't even what we, I really don't remember what we talked about, but I remember the feeling. This, I was feeling like this was the nicest, smartest, sweetest person I have ever spoken to. And I hold that opinion of her to date. It's one of those people you talk to and when she leaves, your spirit just feels lifted. And I found it odd because um, looking at her, like looking at her dress and everything, actually there's nothing so unusual about her because I think they used to complain about her low-cut tops and my tops are much lower cut than hers. They'd complain about her tight jeans, but everyone wore tight jeans were in university in Nairobi, for goodness sake. And there was nothing so spectacular about her that would allow people to mark her. But at that moment, I wondered if anyone had ever talked to her and gotten the same feeling I got. It's like on a really, really hot day and someone gives you a cold glass of water. That's the feeling she had on your spirit. And then again, you know, this brings up even more confusion because I'm like, wait a minute, this chick is the stereotypical woman I love to hate. So why is it that, you know, talking to her and engaging her is leaving me feeling great? This gets me thinking, and then it didn't help that now after that we had to start, you know, taking classes that forced us into critical thinking. Like one particular class, I think it was criminology, but I do remember my lecture again, another woman. But during her classes, one time she posed a question to us and she asked, whose morality is it really? Like, who gets to decide what the norm is? And that question, actually, I, I keep it with me to date because... When she asked that question, one of the things I started asking myself was, who decided that it's a bad thing to be a woman? I had to ask myself, like in general, as something that I had experienced, but even in my head as something that I had decided to adopt. What is so bad about it? And this was really tough. It was actually painful because now I'd gotten to that stage where I had to force myself to unlearn the things that I'd struggled so hard to hold on to. I'd struggled so hard to hold on to the fact that women never wanted to be my friend. I'd struggled so hard to hold on to the fact that women would always mistreat me, that, you know, they would always try to set me up. But now I was actually forced to ask myself, is it, did they do that because they were women or did, was it just a chance that they were women who happened to do that? And I'm telling you, unlearning is never easy. Unlearning is painful you know eventually social media came up and the interesting thing about social media is that I love how it fitted my introvertedness because I could get to you know meet and talk and study people without ever having to meet people so initially I I started you know gaining an interest in looking at the stories of women across the globe you know women from history and whatever but bit by bit I started narrowing down and starting to look at stories of African women. Initially, it was women of color, then African women. Then I started narrowing down into the stories of Kenyan women. And I started realizing a lot of stories are resonating with me. The ones which I can't relate to inspire me, you know. The ones which are not just inspiring, are just uplifting. Stories make you happy. Stories make you think. And again, I go, I go back to asking myself, but if all these wonderful things are being created by women, why am I still holding on to that title of a woman hater? So. As I started working and, you know, interacting more and more with, me, with women, slowly I had to let go of that title. And the things that I grew up experiencing, it had nothing to do with women wronging me. It was just people who wronged me who happened to be women. And I had to unpack this and also start looking back at my history and looking at all the people who did amazing things in my life, the people who made me feel so happy and so safe. 
and the fact that they also happened to be women. So it's been a long and painful journey, but I think I'm so excited about where I've reached. And I really appreciate like all the women who've created a space where girls like me, girls who might have gone through what I went through, no longer have to, you know, hold on to those painful experiences because they don't know anything else. I'd never thought I'd use this phrase, but women are not a monolith. And I'm so excited that we're finally in a space where we can see that. Catch our next African stories in the next episode. I am so thankful that Patricia shared this story. Ah, like it's it's one of those things, as I said, that makes you question what are some of the things you've gone through, traumatic or not, and how have they affected you? In fact, while I was editing the story, the song that came to mind is one of my favorite Erica Badu songs. It's called The Healer. <laughs> my husband Fal says it sounds like a chant, not a song, but it's, I don't know, it's so beautiful to me. It really is such a beautiful song to me. And, but there's a point in which Erica Badu says, you don't have to believe everything you think we've been programmed. And I don't know why the first time I heard the song, I was like, "Mm, that's a very interesting lyric. Hmm, What does that mean? And at first I was conflicted because I'm like, what do you mean? I don't have to believe everything I think. I know who I am. So my thoughts come from a space of knowledge, (laughs) self-knowledge. But then it's one of the things where you're like, interrogate the things you think, the things you believe, and ask yourself, what's influencing them? In this regard, could it be a traumatic experience that's making you think a certain way or be a certain way? Anyway, that's a lot to think about. (laughs) You can let me know your thoughts, by the way, on the story. If you relate with it or if it sparked something for you, hit me up on the Legally Clueless hotline number, which is plus 254-768-628-790. I do enjoy receiving your audio notes. Hey Adele, Savannah here. I just want to say thank you so much for the insight that you bring onto this platform. I was listening to episode 69, just in in an attempt to get into a productivity spur because that's what I do when I listen to podcasts and I stopped immediately when you started talking about how you know we invalidate ourselves and not want to ask for help because that's me (laughs) and then listening to Samantha talk about like her life experience and I was like damn sis damn that is my story as well exactly word for word and it's remarkable to see that there's nothing new under the sun like I never thought about it so deeply but I've always been told you know you're very closed off you're cold and this and that but I just realized wow Sav it's it's a defense mechanism and maybe you need to do better to you know open up and like you know see world in a different light instead of you know looking at it from a point of pain so yeah I just really wanted to thank you for bringing that to light and highlighting that specifically on how you know pain is very familiar pain expects you to acknowledge it and also my younger sister is actually the reason why i listen to your podcast she's 15 and she was like yeah i listened to adele on younger so i was like okay let me let me check it out and i am beyond mesmerized thank you so much for this oh man thank you so much savannah and oh my word send your sister my love 15 year old listening to this podcast is so beautiful i was saying how these stories they cut across age gender race 
it's very magical how connected our human experiences are. However, remember, you can catch this podcast on Trace Radio every Monday, Wednesday and Friday at 9 a.m. and 8 p.m. Just head over to traceradio.co.ke for a list of the frequencies. If you're in Kenya, you can tune in the good old fashioned way or you can stream on that website as well. And also make sure you join the Legally Clueless tribe. We're growing on Instagram. That's at Legally Clueless Podcast. And finally, if you want to share a story on the podcast, just the same way Patricia did, just send to the Legally Clueless hotline number on WhatsApp a one-minute story demo. Tell me a bit about the story you want to share. I'll probably send you some story prompts and then we shall decide a day and time for me to record your story remotely. And that's it for this episode of Legally Clueless. You can share this podcast with your friends. You can keep it for yourself. I'm not judging. Just make sure you're here next week for the next episode.